sex is fun. You know, it's great when you have that connection and, and the love that goes along with it, but just raw animal sex is fucking hot. And who wouldn't want to do that all day, every day? My sex life has always been like trial and error. You know, like you, you try something, do you like it, yes or no? And uh, then you move on from there. For me, bad sex is when you allowed something to happen when you should have said no. First you have the sex, and then you have the sex you want. Actually, I refer to myself as the accidental HIV activist because that, that's how I see it. And I, I think that's a fairly common thread through most stories when it comes to activism and advocacy work. Hello, welcome back. I'm Philip Banks, and I'm your host for the Audio Sex Party. I'm really happy you've joined us. Turns out, gay guys like talking about sex. Big surprise. It's a rich subject, and when we get talking about our sex lives, it can get really hot. I know this because together with some friends, I hosted three audio sex parties, where a few dozen men shared intimate details about the sex they have and the sex they want. From these conversations, we pulled out 10 themes that we've woven into our first season of this podcast for your oral pleasure. That's A-U-R-A-L. On the last episode of the podcast, we heard guys talk about racial fetishization. And on this episode, we listened to guys talk about living with and hooking up with HIV. So come on in and join the party. I've been HIV positive since 2015, so I consider myself an HIV baby. Uh, my name is Randy Davis. I uh, live in Barrie, Ontario, and I am the gay men's sexual health coordinator at the Gilbert Center, an AIDS service organization in that wonderful town. And through various circumstances, I ended up moving from Ottawa to Barrie about a year and a half ago. And there was a, a local broadcast on the news about the AIDS walk. And it struck me as I was watching this broadcast, they also interviewed two individuals from the area that were HIV positive. And these individuals chose to hide their faces and just change their names. And the whole point of the AIDS walk that year, and I guess every year, is smashing stigma. And it just, it struck me that in 2017 at that point, there was no one, even in Simcoe County, that was willing to put a face to what HIV looked like and the fact that it is no longer a death sentence. And so I, I chose very publicly and deliberately to make sure that everyone that I spoke to and that saw me in Simcoe County, at least, knew that I was HIV positive. It's not my saying, but it's, it's something that I commonly say that, you know, HIV is the virus and stigma is the disease. That's, that's what we're fighting now. People that I know who are my age are just really not educated at all, I find, um, which leads to stigma because, yeah, they just don't know. I think um, what I often do is I, I, I ask people, do you know what U equals U mean? And probably about 90% of the people I ask don't know what it is. And I think that leads to a lot of stigma. That was Justin Anantawan. We heard him talking about sexual racism on episode five of the podcast. When people still believe that, you know, HIV is this virus that's so easy to to catch and that it's just, you know, you, you, you have sex with someone who's HIV positive and like right away you're going to get, you know, not just HIV, but right away you're going to get AIDS, right? Um, which a lot of people still think. Um, 
Yeah, because they don't know what U equals U, for example, and other aspects of HIV, you know, there's still a lot of stigma. U equals U is undetectable equals untransmittable. What that simply means is an individual living with HIV who is taking their antiretroviral medications as prescribed um, within three to six months will attain an undetectable viral load, which means that the amount of the virus in their system is slow, lo so low it can't be detected in a, in a blood test. And by being undetectable, you're unable to transmit the virus. It's, a, it's as simple as that. So about the, the tone and or the tenor of the conversations that I have when I want to hook up or somebody wants to hook up with me, I think is more polarized than before. Either people are very with it or they're very without it. So they're very uncool and they ask things like, you know, are you clean? Which is really, I mean, it happens very often. That's why I repeat that example. Or they're completely on board. They, they've read their stuff. They've talked to their physicians or whomever, and, and they know their shit, and they don't ask weird questions. That was Francisco Banez Carrasco. He was a guest at one of the audio sex parties. We heard Francisco talk about the ways technology has changed hookup culture. That was on episode one of the podcast. He also talked about kink on episode two. One of the things that I find very comical when I talk with someone who's very young, and I mean of legal age, but very young, is that they continuously ask me whether I'm on PrEP. And PrEP is for negative people only, right? A, a person with HIV cannot be on PrEP. We can be on medications, but we're not going to be on pre-exposure prophylactics because we have no pre-exposure to be aware of. But in their minds, in their cultural minds, the idea is that if you are on PrEP, if everybody's on PrEP in the world, never mind being medicalized, everybody's safe, and that makes them very happy. So it's an interesting departure point for any conversation with a 20-something-year-old. You have to assure them that you're on PrEP, even though it's a lie. I'm on our, uh, HIV medications, right? Only negative people can be on PrEP. People, I think, when you're coming into especially a bath situation, which invites a lot of newcomers, people are on all sorts of different levels and you know, often don't know the etiquette or how to actually negotiate anything if they need something to be negotiate or negotiated. I'm Tim McCaskill. I'm a gay dinosaur, been out since the early 70s, was a, an AIDS activist um, and a community activist, or have been, continued to be for most of my life. Um, been living with HIV since probably the very early 80s, maybe the late 70s. Nobody knows. No, there was no test in those days and continue to be active in the community. Uh, I wasn't at the audio sex party, but if I was, I guess one of the things that I want to talk about would be Crystal Matthews. Sometimes they're completely naive. I was playing around with somebody and he wanted to get fucked. And so, you know, I put on a condom and I fucked him for a while. And then we kind of slowed down and stopped and rested. And then he wanted to get fucked some more. So I put on the condom again and did it again. Um, and nobody came. And then, uh, so we stopped for a rest and, and I took off the condom. My dick was still hard. And all of a sudden, just in like a swoop, he just like flipped over and sat on my dick, right? And, and like bounced up and down about twice and then blasted all over the place. And so I thought, okay, well, that was kind of, you know, kind of like a porn movie, but that's fine. But then I said, you know, you know, I was using a condom, you know, maybe you, you know, I don't know what your situation is, but maybe you might want to ask before you get 
had somebody, uh, you know, fuck you without a condom. And, you know, I thought maybe he would say, I don't worry about it or whatever. But he said, like, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I'm positive. Um, You you don't know what my viral load is. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm fucking you raw you know anything could happen and then he was kind of he freaked out he didn't know anything about anything and I had to spend another half an hour kind of doing HIV 101 with this kid before he was finally you know in any shape to to leave my room and then you know later on in the halls he bumped into me again and he was still freaking out and I had to sit down with him and have another long chat with him um so, you know, what you find in those kinds of situations is really all over the map. And I think that you just got to, you know, go with the flow. After I got diagnosed, I think it was just really hard for me to, to trust anyone. It was actually hard for me at first to have sex again because I just kept on assuming that, um, you know, I would transmit the virus to somebody else. Um, and this was before I really, again, trusted the idea of what you kills you meant. And, um, yeah. Um, but it took a while for me to have a different relationship with sex because I think, especially after the diagnosis, I, I also became a lot more maybe selective about who I slept with because quite naturally, because of the stigma also, it was also harder for me to meet men who were comfortable having sex with me. So um, I think through that process, I also just became a lot more selective about who I want to have sex with. So like, if I don't have a connection with someone, if I really don't care about someone, um, you know, it's hard for me to, to have sex with them um, because I don't want to have sex with people who, who just make me feel bad. Um, Yeah, so I have a lot less sex now, I think, but the sex I do have when I have it, it's a lot better, I think. Initially, a lot of the guys that I hooked up with um, shortly after my diagnosis were other guys living with HIV. I made a conscious effort at that time, or a conscious decision at that time, rather, to... um, to put on my uh, my online profiles, my scruff and my grinder profiles, that I was someone living with HIV. I think I did that rather naively because the whole idea of the criminalization around HIV hadn't really hit home to me at that point. The field is changing now, but in Canada up until relatively recently, if you were HIV positive, you were pretty well required to tell whatever sex partner you were engaging with no matter what you were doing uh, of your of your serial status, if not, then your the sex that you had, or that person's consent to the sex that you had, would be um, considered invalid, and therefore, without consent, you had basically raped them. And so, people with HIV who were having sex with people, and for a whole range of reasons, not talking about their own stereo status, maybe because they were using condoms, uh, maybe because they were only doing oral sex and there was no chance of transmission anyway, maybe because they were in tim- a whole bunch of reasons, right? Uh, suddenly found, we all suddenly found ourselves at risk of uh, a, a prosecution, uh, one of the most serious crimes in the criminal code, sort of like one down for murder. And if you were convicted, you could also be declared a, a, a serious sexual offender and put on his list uh, for the rest of your life, and that would follow you around whenever you tried to get a job or you know, do anything, right? 
So it was a pretty dire situation. Uh, and the way the law always works, right, it never, it never falls on people uh, dispassionately. Right? There, were more, um, there were more racialized people uh, who were being arrested, um, more poor people, uh, you know, people who were sort of at the margins. They were at the greatest, uh, at the greatest risk of, uh, of finding themselves sort of dragged into court. We've changed things now in Ontario, and this varies from province to province. If you're on PrEP, you don't really have to tell. Just, being, just using a condom uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't cut it, right? Which is bizarre because if you use a condom correctly, it's also 100% uh, uh, effective in stopping HIV transmission. Uh, and we recently got some new recommendations out of the uh, a standing committee at Parliament in the federal the federal level who are dealing with changes in the criminal code to try to get uh, this whole question of non-disclosure out of sexual assault completely, out of that whole part of the law, and deal with it someplace else, so that the uh, <clears throat> so that the, the courts could deal with it more dispassionately and the kinds of really draconian, horrible punishments like people going to jail for years and then finding themselves as a serious sexual offender. Uh, that kind of thing would simply evaporate. This is not, um, this is not easy for queer people and queer men um, to be living with HIV and navigating sexual cultures. It's like it's still super stigmatizing. Uh, hi, I'm Makiki. I am a performance and video artist. Uh, I'm also a um, queer community health activist, and I have been working in sexual and reproductive health education and gay men's health and gay men living with HIV as a particular focus, and then also gay men who uh, use drugs um, for upwards of 20 years. I wasn't at the party, uh, but if I were at the party, I definitely would have talked about fisting. Um, and... Uh, because I always have the manicure, and for those that don't know what the manicure is, it is um, the shortest nails possible, always filed down, um, and any hangnails clipped and or bandaged. Even though um, U equals U or undetectable equals untransmittable is like this global campaign that's had a lot of traction, people in community already knew that this is like, of, like, of course, you know, like, of course this is real because we have been seeing it play out in our lives. We know, you know, like the same thing that we've known for a long time, which is if we're able to take our meds regularly, if we're able to have a stable place to live, if we're able to achieve undetectability, which not everyone is even really able to do, but with a suppressed viral load, we're not going to transmit. That's the thing that we've known for a long time. It's um, about having to explain to every negative person that I sleep with that you don't need to take prep. You'd like, you, you do because in your head, you still see me as something to be feared and potentially that's what turns you on. But I am also um, looking after my health and the secondary benefit is that you will not get HIV from me. Um, but that uh, is still, I think, laced or laden with this residual stigma, which we have, you know, like, 
kind of culturally this idea of positive people as being either irresponsible at the best or malevolent evil pause vampires at the worst like it doesn't leave us in a great place for like what our credibility is you kind of touched on a little bit there when you were talking about prep and how it's seen as if you're on prep then you must be promiscuous and sleep around a lot What's the problem with that? What, why, why is wanting to have sex and having a lot of sex a bad thing? Yeah. It's not. I'm not as sold on PrEP as some people. I mean, PrEP is a, a really expensive condom that doesn't prevent, protect you from other STIs, right? Now, if you, you know, don't want to deal with condoms and just you know, want to go for it, then of course that makes, that makes, uh, it makes good sense uh, for people to, to be on PrEP. But... Um, you know, coming down with a clap or, uh, or syphilis or something isn't kind of, you know, it's, it's almost as much trouble as having HIV these days, right? This past week, actually, I uh, started on PrEP. And th- these are like big blue pills. They're horse pills. They're yeah. big. Yeah. And I was like, I never liked taking pills. So I took it this morning after, you know, waking up and... Then we had like a lot of food at the conference, so I feel like that's layered it down. And now I'm having some wine, and I'm still living. So these were all my concerns. Prep does not interact with alcohol. Alcohol does not interact with prep. That's a good thing. I I had to look that up actually because I started prep not too long ago, and I've been finding wine. I was like, is it getting me drunker faster? And is that the prep? And so I did some research on it. No, it's actually just me. Yeah, I'm probably drinking more wine than I'm paying attention to. Imagine if like all the gays in the world would find out that there was an interaction they'd be really mad and like yeah no we would stop using prep <laughs> not accessible but then at some point i don't think that prep is the kind of panacea to kind of cure everything i also don't think that we um are ever going to necessarily be able to kind of get everyone who is living with hiv on treatment and virally suppressed um Ethically, I just think that we can't like make that assumption, and I also think it's really important for people to um, take their sexual health management into their own hands. And prep is one of the ways that negative people um, can finally take the responsibility for their own HIV prevention off the backs of people living with HIV. Which, I mean, granted, I fucked a lot of negative dudes, and they take their responsibility as well. So it's like it's a complicated uh, web we weave in this whole world of trying to have gay sex. Um, I think that while there are people in Canada who are unable to access HIV medication to treat our HIV, I think we should be questioning how freely accessible PrEP is. Um, And yes, make it as accessible as possible, but people need HIV medication to stay alive, make that a goddamn priority. And um, this also kind of speaks to the idea that, um, you know, like there's been, a, there's been a fear in pause communities that, you know, like there's always money for prevention. There's uh, way less money for care, treatment, and support. We talk about U equals U all the time, and it's great, undetectable equals untransmittable. But 
we're starting to talk more and more about that third you, um, which is that universal access to, to treatment, universal access to medications, universal access to methods to help folks adhere to those medications, because that's an issue for some folks as well. They can, they can get the medication, but for various reasons, whether it be due to, um, um, you know, folks who are street involved or using substances, uh, sometimes taking a pill a day can be a challenge. Um, there's a lot of studies that are, that are, uh, have been worked on. And, and I know for a fact that the, uh, the once a month injectable is very close to becoming a reality where you'll just go to your doctor once a month and get a, uh, a needle in the butt and not have to go back for another 30 days. And that will keep you undetectable, just like taking, uh, in my case, one pill a day. But those are all things that, again, we, we know we have the tools to make this happen, but the access is the big thing because we, we can't leave those behind and we can't forget about those folks who aren't able to reach an undetectable viral load. Because even, even as a detectable, someone who's detectable living with HIV, you're still not at risk. You know, there's all kinds of ways to, to protect yourself and your partners, whether it be condoms or your partner being on PrEP. I mean, there's just a whole gamut of, uh, of options out there for folks, detectable or not that uh, can really help to stop the spread of HIV. And the more we talk about it and dismantle the stigma around it, the easier it's going to be for people to understand that this is not the the big, bad, scary that it was back in the early days of the epidemic. Um, and, and that being said, I mean, when I was diagnosed in 2015, some of the first thoughts that went through my mind were, you know, my life is over and there's really not much point in going on. I was single at the time. I thought I'd always be single. Um, and I think those are still... The folks that I talk to and the work I do, um, and I do speak to a lot of folks who are newly diagnosed, those are still, even with all the science and the knowledge we have, those thoughts still creep in as your first initial thoughts when you hear those words, you're positive. Uh, and we need to, to change that. There's, you know, the, the most recent statistics that I'm aware of um, indicate that 14% of folks living with HIV in Canada don't know that they're living with HIV. They're, they've been, they haven't been tested. And they're not getting tested because they're afraid. So we need to make sure that folks like me who are willing to talk up and speak up and show what it looks like to live with HIV in 2019, that, you know, people know that so that uh, that fear can slowly be dismantled. But we're talking, you know, 35 years of, of fear and ignorance that we have to overcome and that's not going to happen overnight. Thanks for joining the Audio Sex Party. On this episode, you heard Randy Davis, Justin and Antoine, Francisco Ibanez Carrasco, Tim McCaskill, Akiki. But we also heard lots of other voices too. And we want to thank them for coming to the party and sharing their stories. Join us next time. We'll hear guys talk about party and play. The way that I get the sex I want is with my boyfriend sometimes. We've been together for 45 years, but also in the baths where I can meet a whole range of people uh, who are interested in doing different things and have different kinds of experiences and can make uh, sex uh, ever more exciting and fresh.
the way I get the sex I want is waking up my husband and fucking him. And I get the sex I want because I know it's the sex he wants as well.